This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I am here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hello. Today, we have two interviews. Rebecca, first, we hear your conversation with Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe, the costume designers of Killers of the Flower Moon. And then, David, we'll hear your conversation with Cynthia Arrivo about her film Drift. So, Rebecca, you got the chance to talk to two of the costume designers, visionaries, um, incredible creatives behind Killers of the Flower Moon, which is just as massive a film as I think you would expect from Martin Scorsese at this phase in his career. Um, And the costumes in particular required so much of uh, these two designers and capture so much of this story. Um, I am really curious to hear what you talked to Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe about. Yeah, I'm sure you had the same um, experience as I did when you saw this, Katie, is the costumes are so incredible, especially the detail that went into the Osage people's wardrobe, because it seemed very clear to me they were trying to get it very accurate. So I was really interested to hear about that. You know, Jacqueline West is a very well-known costume designer for Oscar nominations, somehow no wins, but, uh, you know, she did Dune, Revenant, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Um, and so she actually brought on Julie O'Keefe, who served as the Osage wardrobe consultant and um, is a part of that community and was able to really um, speak to, you know, the history and the design and bring in artisans to create these authentic pieces. Yeah, when you read the book by David Gran, um, there's all these descriptions of these Osage people who are kind of have their traditional dressing that they've worn for centuries, but then got very, very wealthy and would adopt all these kind of nouveau reach uh, for coats and things like that appropriate to the 20s. And that combination was uh, captivated so many newspaper writers at the time, like couldn't believe that you could combine these two things. And I think the the movie captures that contrast so visually, but also makes it clear of that, like why, how these kind of unlikely outfits that we would think of now belong to these people in a specific place and time. It all feels so incredibly detailed, not just about the Osage culture, but but this moment in the Osage culture. Yeah. I mean, I talked to Jacqueline about this, but I guess Brad Pitt once called her a method costumer because she does such an incredible amount of research and she really believes that the clothes inform the performance, you know, and she talks about how wearing those more high-waisted pants, even on the men in this film or for Brad Pitt and Benjamin Button, change the way people walk. The the way putting on these blankets changes the way that people carry themselves. And it's true. You can, I think you can really see the way it colors performance. Um, Well, I feel like there's so much to get into. I cannot wait to hear all about it. Let's hear your conversation with costume designers Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe. 
I'm so excited to welcome Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe to the podcast. They're the duo behind the incredible costumes of Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which begins rolling out in theaters this weekend. Um, I saw the film way back at the Cannes Film Festival in May and was struck by how big of a job it must have been to create the costumes for this incredible movie. So I'm so happy to have you both here. We're happy to be here. Yes. Thanks for joining me. Um, Jacqueline, you have a lot of experience with really big, ambitious films, period films. I feel like you've done a lot of big work, but I actually read that on a panel earlier this year, you said Killers of the Flower Moon was the most incredible experience of your film career. Can you tell me why this film holds that place for you? My husband's part Native American, and since I was a small child, my favorite people in all movies were the Native Americans. There was something romantic about it to me. Then I was a hippie girl, and we all wanted to dress. We all wore fringe and tried to, you know, emulate that romantic look of the plains. But my mother was a fashion designer, so I segued after having a clothing company into doing film. And I always wanted to work on a film about Native Americans. And fortunately, I was hired early on in my career by Terrence Malick. So then that led to The Revenant. And all of those experiences, each film I'm on is my favorite film at the time. Because film is like time travel. You get to immerse yourself into another culture and another time. And we all live in the present. And this is a rare experience of getting to really almost feel like you're living in another time and and creating it and then being able to crawl in. My favorite movies I've ever seen are movies I wanted to crawl into and be in. And the whole time I was making this, I wanted to be in it and part of it. Even though it's a tragic story, the characters are compelling and you just want to be part of it. But for me, it was a high point in my career. I've worked with the most, I think, brilliant directors there are. But to get to work finally with Martin Scorsese was a high point. My husband said, okay, now you can quit. <laughs> you work with Marty, you can quit now. <laughs> but yeah, this was a magical experience for me. And the friends that I made and uh, having my dream crew that I take from big movie to big movie along with me. They're not always all available, mm -hmm. but they were all available. Having Julie by my side, who uh, was, you know, she was like some kind of a barometer of where we were at, what we were doing. And I really loved the epic quality of this movie. I got to dress so many different levels. I got to do cowboys. I got to do Native Americans. I got to do businessmen. I got to do flappers. I got to do, you know, women. And this is such a crossover time in American history. It's one of my favorites where the horse and the car collide mm -hmm. on the same streets. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a high point. And tell me about the two of you teaming up, um, Julie, how you were brought on this project and and sort of your initial impressions about what might be the biggest challenges. Well, I was brought on. I've never been in this. In, I had never been in this industry before. So my chief actually called me. I was working on a contract actually for First Americans Museum and my background's in product development. And um, 
I'd had a shop that produced museum quality uh, native regalia. And it was in Pahaska, but I was living in D.C. and would bring items from New York and different places and materials that my people couldn't get at, down in Oklahoma. And so um, I had that shop for probably about 10 years, and it was called The Cedar Chest. And so he called one day and he said, Julie, you know, this movie's coming we're really going to have to have the right person, you know, come in and really help. And you're one of the best candidates I can think of for going into a situation that you don't know anything about, <laughs> basically going in and, and helping. And I said, and I almost said, no, I was like, you know, chief, I have this, I have this, uh, you know, contract and it's for a year and whatever, but it was during COVID. And so it, you know, COVID really allowed for a lot of projects and things, you know, if you work from home, and I did already, to come to you. And so he said, you know, oh, please. So I turned, I turned my resume in before COVID. COVID comes and shuts everything down, comes back up again, and Jackie's team comes in. And so they take my resume, and they go ahead and give me a call. And so I come in, and I am blown away by the amount of research, and I mean thousands of photographs, and really broken out into how people are men and women and traditional and modern and modern traditional. And she really broken these out into these storyboards, but I mean, floor to ceiling. And so um, it was some of the best wallpaper I ever saw because that's what it looked like when you walked in there. But um, anyway, so I came to it that, that way. And when I, when I started and I could really understand walking in there clearly how she was thinking and it had was mapping it out. And my community had met with Martin Scorsese and had invited him to dinner and uh, a couple of dinners. And it was very serious discussion for the citizens uh, of the Osage Nation, because this is a topic that's extremely hard for us to talk about, even in our families. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of generational trauma that comes with it. So it was really a project that was really felt like that I was supposed to be a part of. And the reason being that I was there to help represent my people. And there's really no greater gift than that for me. You know, it's when you're helping your family and you're, and you're helping your community. And that's really how that project, and it turned into a community project. Mm. And you're referencing some of, I assume, the very in-depth research that went into preparing for this project. But Jacqueline, I'm curious, through that process, what did you discover that sort of surprised you that maybe you hadn't uh, expected to be part of your decision making? Well, as I said, I'd done other Plains Native peoples before in other movies, but I had never really researched the Osage Nation before. And the most startling thing was right at the beginning, an image my husband found who was helping me. We were It was during COVID, and we were at our house in Deadwood, South Dakota. And we went to the library in uh, Rapid City. And also there's an incredible library in Deadwood. And so we really started diving in together. And he was helping me because we were kind of stuck there, you know. There was no reason to go back to Los Angeles with all the hospitals filled. So 
we started in and the first thing he showed me that he found that I'd never seen and that is totally unique to the Osage is the wedding coat. And I got so excited when I saw it. It was really, you know, Regency meets Native America. And I said, oh, God, if only, I said, I'll never make that, I'll never, that'll never fly. <laughs> it looked next to all the other, you know, Plains research that I had done in so many movies, it looked so unique and so over the top almost. You know, it was like putting a Marie Antoinette into a into a horse opera, you know, it's like just with ribbon more. Wouldn't she be fabulous? Yeah. So so I couldn't believe it. But in the end, I started reading about it and its history and how it evolved to become part of Osage regalia. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna show, I'm gonna show Marty. <laughs> and I did, and he just loved it. And that whole scene, we knew that there would be a wedding scene in the movie then and there. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the most important thing. I think maybe that and the otter hats. Yes, for sure. We're so unique, mm -hmm. uh, as are the, the ribbon work. The calico shirts are pretty much through the plains because of the trading posts. Mm -hmm. But the ribbon work, the finger weaving, and the wedding coats, mm -hmm. the otter hats, those are really unique to the Osage because there have been uh, cookie-cutter uh, representations all through the years in Hollywood. And that would have been the biggest disservice to this magnificent artistic peoples. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine that authenticity must have been, you know, the, of the highest priority for both of you and, and Marty. But um, Julie, for you, what did you want to sort of protect the most or make sure was correctly represented um, of the Osage people? My home on the reservation so I could go back home and face everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, no, the truth is, is a lot of our history is told within the materials of our clothing. Mm. You know, that silhouette and those materials have not changed for over 150 years. And so you start doing a timeline of, you know, when they would have come from Missouri, which those materials were already into, were already in our clothing. And we moved in 1860 from uh, Missouri to Oklahoma. They brought that with them. We had to leave so much behind, but we brought that with us. And so as you can kind of see how that trickles down into the timeline into 1920 and the broadcloth uh, is something that was traded, you know, as passage across our lands. That was, uh, you know, gifts. I mean, uh, Lewis and Clark actually had that within. I, I tried to reproduce it at one time through my shop, and I had to buy so much of it. I, I, I was afraid of moths. But the truth was that um, as you start looking and understanding why French ribbon, and, you know, we have fantastic artisans that – that, you know, some of the best art is, doesn't come from large studios. It comes from kitchen tables. Mm. And I'm, an, I'm a native art consultant in what I call my real life, even though I think this is my real life now. But anyway, <laughs> but, they, um, but they basically will cut these families, that, like their family patterns, and they will cut and fold. It's not an applique type of it. They're cut, they're cut and fold. And same with the finger weaving. 
That's it's quintessential Osage. And I just went to a discussion at First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City just uh, two weeks ago. And I'm walking through this exhibit and I see this photograph where they're showing uh, an Osage woman. And typically they tie that on the back of their chairs, but this woman has tied it to the actual handle of a window. And this is probably from the 1900s. And she's weaving this belt, either for her daughter or her granddaughter, but she's weaving, It's it, you can see it's a belt. And so, you know, the artisans of that time, we only have five left that can even do that. And we engaged those people to come in and help us do this through our cultural center. Um, we reached out into the community. We reached out to, you know, the people that I knew to be the, you know, the old, some of the oldest ribbon work maker families, because that comes down in the generations. Mm -hmm. And so the authenticity part of that, that you're drawing out are these pieces. And, you know, I, uh, you know, you kind of get into this question of costume or clothing and it's like, okay, it's costume for a film, but I would tell you that every single piece is of authentic original material. So there was no skimping on the 27 yards of ribbon that went into Lily's blanket that she has on underneath her wedding coat in one of the scenes. And uh, a very well-known family is the Lookout family, and Marie Lookout made that uh, particular blanket. But it's you, you just get into the intricacies of that. And, um, and that's one thing that I'm very proud of. Because this really was a community project, and everyone did it with with just their full hearts, wanting to help get this right. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Was there a scene where when it was finally filming, all your work came to fruition and you were able to witness it that was uh, the most powerful moment for you to be there on set, for both of you to be there on set and sort of witness? One really important scene for me, I think, was the delegation leaving, leaving from Fairfax to Washington, D.C., because the tragedy is already quite far along mm -hmm. and it's like... Uh, enough, enough of this attack, this horrible, you know, genocide on our people. And that they put on those blankets, it was like armor, okay, heading. It was almost, it was like, almost like a war party mm -hmm. heading for Washington, D.C. You fix this or else. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that scene that so moved me. Mm -hmm. The overhead shots that Rodrigo did, mm -hmm that they're all there and you see the sadness on their faces. And because this was so, we used so many 
people from the Osage Nation in that scene. And you you felt, I get chills when I think about it, you felt how they felt at that point in time. What what a what a journey this was gonna be. It wasn't it wasn't a political delegation. This was really like a war party going to Washington, DC, giving the facts to the president and making this like an important agenda for the United States government. Julie, do you have a scene that uh, sort of sticks with you? And I love the wedding scene, of course. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of work went into that. Yes, it did. There was something about the emotionality, though, of that train station scene. Well, they're all lined up. Right. And the interesting part is, is if you go back in that picture of the original photo of that, there are descendants of some of those people that are actually in that delegation. Wow. So imagine when you're thinking about your your great-great-grandfather basically being a part of that delegation, and then you're in a movie portraying that. And we had several people all through the movie. And, you know, I would tell you more than a scene because every one of the scenes were important to me when it involved Osages or Lily or the sisters or whatever mm-hmm. was going on. You know, it's always that for me, it's always I'm goal oriented. So it's always the task at the time. We're getting it right. You know, I have everything that I need, which Jackie was having produced by this fabulous team that she has to be able to come in. You know, I know that I've got the right families plugged in to get this, to help us do this and achieving each one of those scenes. And the interesting part to me is, you know, Jacqueline had gone to Pendleton and had them reproduce the blankets at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of questions about, you know, blankets and, you know, people really trying to explain it. But what blankets and shawls do in that movie is basically tell you about an event that's happening right then. Because different ways and folding, you know, I kind of joke around, but I'm very serious about the fact it's it's like Osage origami because you are constantly folding and changing. This person has had a tragedy or a death. We're going to put a black shawl on this person and she's going to be combing her mother's hair. And we need to fold that up in a way where she's she's using this as a, as you know, a statement that she's making uh, mourning because their mother's passing and she's sitting there, but we have to work with that so that she can live with it in everyday life. Just as simple as using a comb. And it has all this fringe on it, beautiful fringe. So working with Lily, but also so that I understood her tasks of what she was doing. And then we could work with that. And then going in that delegation, Every single one of those Osage, if you look in that, are wearing a blanket when they get to, they have their finery on, they have their fur coats, they have their French shoes, they have all of that. But they, almost every one of them has a blanket. And, you know, it's a power suit in a way Mm. where you're walking in and telling somebody, we're showing up here as a group. It's inti- we're intimidating. I mean, we were we were a tribe. You know, we were used to going out and intimidating when we had to, and to also come in because you are asking for help. But it's one of those. It's we're out of respect. We're wearing this, but it's also a situation when we have come to talk business with you, and you are going to talk business with us, and so you're making a statement. And I would say the other thing, like uh, Chief Bonnie Castle. So you have Chief Bonnie Castle, who has uh, a certain way that he's wearing his blanket, which is a long style. Mm. You have 
people that are leaders and what we call roadmen, but roadmen are really holy men. And so they're, we're putting those blankets around their waist. And a lot of times, if you're in anything that's a religious ceremony, a lot of times they'll put those, the men will put those around their waist. And they still do that to this day. So, um, you know, and for the women with shawls or wearing blankets just to go down to the bank or to conduct business at the mercantile or wherever they're going, um, you know, they're going to be wearing those certain ways so that people, you know, kind of know that you're out for doing business and hi, how are you? But you can really tell and set a scene if you watch kind of the different ways you know something else is going on. Hmm. So fascinating. You know, in a more general sense, I'm curious what the two of you learned from each other working together on this. That we really like it. We like each other. <laughs> yes. I had, I had never worked with a, a consultant that was with me all the time. And there was, at first, I thought, oh, can I work that way? You know, I'm only used to showing things to a director. I've never had, you know, a collaborator with me all the time looking at what we were doing and getting it right. But there was something really, uh, to me, very comforting. But that's not even the right word. It was more, we had more of a intellectual rapport about this that, I had someone to talk to mm. and to kind of be a barometer how the rest of the elders, uh, Osage elders, were seeing us and looking at us and okay. at the degree of their approval. And it it was really, really interesting because my main focus was to get this right because it's such a heartfelt story for these people. And it's one that I wanted to make sure I got right for all of the people that will see it in the world, because this is a story no one knew about until the David Grand book, mm-hmm. unless you lived in Pawhuska, maybe. Right. It's even a Native American nation you don't even study in school because no. of what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's been buried, and it was really important for me. I think it could change how people think about Native Americans and what has happened to them historically in America. This well, movie could change the whole way of thinking about things. And I think even without getting too political, but Killers of the Flower Moon went on the list of books in Oklahoma mm-hmm. to not read in schools. And there was a children's version that came out. And I sat on the Osage Foundation. So we bought like a thousand copies and donated it to all the schools in Osage County. Fabulous. And Tulsa, where I live. (laughs) I'm from Berkeley. Get political. (laughs) So anyway, but you know, even to this day, so we knew these stories in our families, but it was very hard for our stories, you know, because there is a lot of generational trauma with it. And People were frightened to talk about it, so they just didn't talk about it. They either moved away or you stopped talking. I mean, it's a shareholder. The first thing that your family tells you if you inherit head rights is, you know, Julie, don't talk about this. Never talk, never. I mean, they would be upset with me for talking to you about it right now. But but it's really one of those where it was a hush-hush kind of thing because no one wanted you to be the next target. And this went on really into the 60s. It finally, in 1972, there was a a law firm that came in and finally wrote the laws within Osage law, but really within uh, federal law, where it was 
that share the shares and the shareholders when you pass away has to go to someone of Osage descent. And so that stopped a lot of the killing. But um, so it's been a very long haul for us. And, um, you know, and I think that there's a lot of people when this story comes out, I, I know that there are a lot of people who are descendants of the other side. I'll call them, I'll say that they're not really wanting it to be told because it's, it's, it's just horrible human behavior and nobody really wants to grapple with that these days. You know, it seems that people come and go with that, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be incredible when this reaches, you know, such a wide audience, both when it comes on theaters and streaming, which it's just about to do by the time this interview comes up. Um, we're almost out of time, but uh, I wanted to wrap up with Jacqueline. I read this quote that I guess is Brad Pitt described you on the curious case of Benjamin Button as a method costumer. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about holding that title and, and how that describes how you work. Well, it was one of the nicest things ever said about me, I have to say. It came out in a fitting, one of my first fittings I ever did with Brad. He had 108 changes in Benjamin Button. So I was a fashion designer, but I was an art historian. And when I decided to do this, Philip Kaufman brought me into the business, the right stuff, unbearable lightness of being. And he said, you can do this, you know, you have a big clothing company, if you can make that many clothes, and, you know, departments and Barneys and everything, you can do this, he said, because you're an art historian. So I decided, how am I going to do this? And I thought, well, who was the, the great, and I read the biography of Edith Head. And she said, the first thing you do on a movie is read the script seven times before you do anything. So you know every character inside out. Then when I was at Berkeley, I had the joy of meeting Anna East Nin because I'd read all her diaries, and she was sitting in a coffee house that I frequented in Berkeley. And she invited me to sit with her because she saw I was reading her diary mm -hmm. in the coffee house, 1931 to 33. And in that diary, she said that how you discover a person's inner riches are in the details. She said, even a hanky in a purse will reveal, when it comes out, will reveal something about that character, that it's all in the details. And so between dressing somebody from the inside out, like Edith had suggested, I always focused on the details. What would be the thing, one thing I could give each character as a talisman of who they are? Because I've always felt, and I told this to Brad, the wardrobe fitting is the first time an actor is in character. That that's the bridge from the actor to the character is when they put the clothes on. Mm. And I saw it with Jeffrey Rush and Quills. He put the Mar Marquis de Sade satin suit on and was walking around the grounds in Luton Hoo, which we, we shot as Sherenton. His whole, he's very languid and loose, Jeffrey. And he became a Marquis in that suit with those shoes. And it changes. If you've done your job right, it will change how you walk. And so when Brad said, do I really have to wear my pants up this high? <laughs> And I said, yes, it's the period. You'll walk differently. And he was in American costume in Los Angeles, and he walked down the aisles, and he came back, and he walked differently. He said, you're right. 
He said, you're really methody. <laughs> and Brad, people don't realize that about Brad because he's so good looking that he's really a method actor. And that's when he came up with that description. He said, you really have made me feel like Benjamin on the inside. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Okay, David, now we'll hear your conversation with Cynthia Erivo. Her film Drift premiered at Sundance earlier this year and uh, is one of the rare films that actors can actually talk about these days, which is thrilling. Um, how was your conversation with Cynthia? Yeah, so Drift was produced outside of the U.S. It was It is not a SAG-covered project, uh, and SAG has encouraged those films, those act- the actors in those films to promote their films. So another example is Helen Mirren and Golda, who's currently on the campaign trail. Um, and Arivo plays a West African refugee uh, who has arrived in Greece. And it's a, in many ways a silent performance. You know, we're getting to know this character uh, in this, to her, very foreign land. She has this incredible trauma that she is dealing with, escaping from. And the film really hinges on her performance and just watching her processing what's happened to her and and trying to imagine a way forward. And I think for me, when I first saw it, I was just incredibly moved by her performance. And um, it's the kind of movie that is not an easy watch. It's not going to find the biggest audience, but I think it really does move those who um, are able to find it. I love that, you know, Cynthia Revo is this fa- very famous Broadway performer. She's got this very famous voice. She's got Wicked coming around the pike. So thinking of her doing a silent performance and kind of stretching her abilities and showing how much she can do maybe ahead of that, uh, once again, career redefining movie Wicked um, is a really interesting move on her part. It's also fascinating because, you know, there are a number of projects that we couldn't talk about because of the strike because she is still an actor on strike. Uh, and in my research for this, she's done quite literally exclusively studio movies uh, <laughs> until this one. And this is a movie she really helped get off the ground as a producer. It's a story she really connected with. Um, and it's a real change of pace for her, both working behind the scenes for the first time in such a capacity and getting this movie off the ground. And then also a movie like this requires, demands a different kind of acting, a different level of acting. And it's really a mode in which I'd never seen her before. Um, where, as you mentioned, on on the Color Purple stage, she is so big and boisterous. Uh, Or in movies like Widows, uh, where we've come to know her on the screen. This is a very new side of her and one that I think is really exciting and and hints at a a really varied screen career. Well, I want to hear what she has to say about it. Let's hear your conversation with Cynthia Erivo. Cynthia, you're here to speak about the film Drift, uh, which I I first saw in Sundance, out of Sundance, uh, and I found it really moving. I have to say, though, I I rewatched it just in prep for this week, and it hit me a little bit differently, just given everything going on in the world right now. uh, and, And what this film, I think, really beautifully captures about the experience of a refugee who's escaping a really traumatic experience. I'm curious how you've, you're thinking about the movie right now. Yeah. I, I, it's so funny because when you do these things, you don't know 
how relevant they will be or how much of, a, of an effect they'll make. I just knew that when I was making it, it, I read it and it was beautiful. And I desperately wanted to give voice to those people who wouldn't necessarily even be noticed. And with everything that's happening today and right now, I don't know, there's just something that is really poignant. And, and I feel like it's really important for people to take a look at those who you might not realize are going through things that we could never even imagine. Mm. Um, and the fact that they're still like standing or even making an effort to move forward every day is, is a freaking miracle. Mm. I have a lot of questions about, about your performance in this movie, but, but given that current resonance, I'm just curious in, in the research, in the portrayal of this character, what, what you learned about that experience that was really important to you to bring forward in, in the character. Um, the thing that I really felt was important was to make sure that we didn't lose her humanity. We didn't lose the the will that she had to live and we didn't lose her dignity. Um, and, and, you know, my mother was a, an immigrant and she came over from, from Nigeria and she was also a part of the Biafran war. So she was also dealing with all of those things. The, the thing that we don't get to see when they're portrayed, when these people are portrayed on film or TV often is dignity. Yes, we see their circumstance. We see what they're going through. We see how much they, they need, but we, we lose the fact that they still are people who have dignity, who want to present themselves in a certain way. I think the wonderful thing about Jacqueline is that she still wants to present. She still wants to be as together as she possibly can. Whatever, with whatever little that she has. And I just thought that there was such a, it's such a human thing that we all want. We all want to be seen in a certain way. We all, and, and she didn't want pity. She's so scared to open up, mainly because she wants to be treated as an, as an equal when up against other people. And I, I really wanted that for her. I really wanted her dignity to shine through. Yeah, I, th I think it really does. And I, I think that, it showcases the power of the movie uh, yeah. in a context like this where, you know, we look at, say, what's going on in Israel and there are just these huge, overarching, extraordinary questions of conflict and, and pain. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that a character study like this does really just introduce you to the individual human experience in a way right. that can be harder for us wherever we are to grasp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just this, uh, and that's that's it really. It's that one singular person, you know, as opposed to grouping everyone in as a whole. Mm -hmm. Each person has their own particular experience, and one might be different to the other. But in pulling out one person, you get to understand that each person you look at isn't just experiencing the same thing. They are all going through their own separate experiences and pain and loss or life. And I think being able to focus in on one person allows us to see the whole a little bit clearer. Hmm. Uh, well, let's go back to the genesis of this project a little bit. I, I saw you were a producer on this. I believe it's, you know, your first, you know, full producing credit. Mm -hmm. So what about this project felt like the movie to make that kind of leap with particularly? I just, it just was really special. I I I read it in many iterations it, 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 and it changed a lot before we got it to to screen but when I read it the first time I just I just don't think I had ever seen a script be so crystal clear about the focus 
about what it was trying to say, about the way it treated its main character. It was written with such care and thought that I I really wanted to put this on screen. And I and I I felt innately that it could be really beautiful mm-hmm. um, to watch this woman live and, and to look at life through her eyes. And because I hadn't seen an experience like that on screen, especially from that part of the world, it just wasn't even really a question for me, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I I was just willing to do whatever was necessary to make it a film, to make it come true. Yeah. It's a really impressive producing team. You have people like Peter Spears who worked on Call Me By Your Name. Um, yeah. I, I'm just curious what you learned about that side of the business, about especially <laughs> with a, you know, a tough indie like this, yeah. um, getting it off the ground, getting it made. What did that look like for you? <laughs> and when we, because we shot on location, so we were in Greece, time was also of the essence. There are different rules uh, in different places. You have a shorter work day, so you have a lot less time to get a lot more things done in a day. So we were having to prioritize, compartmentalize, make sure we were getting shots at the same time. And for me, it was sort of like playing two games at one, point, mm-hmm. one time, wearing two hats at the same time. So I'm on set, on screen, doing the part and realizing, oh, the sun is going down. So we need to get the scene done so we can actually get, move on to the next scene because we have three other scenes to shoot today. It's about delegation and time management. And, you know, if things come up that need to be changed, then a whole discussion needs to be had. And we all have to come together as a real team to figure out any kinks that might have come up um, during the process. Uh, it's tough to do both at the same time. That is one thing I learned. But um, it's also really thrilling to be able to be a part of the conversations that can make a change and the overall journey of the piece, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I wondered about wearing two hats, just given the demands of a role like this. I mean, it is not, (laughs) uh, as you say, uh, something where you can probably just turn it on and off so easily. So I imagine it impacted it a little bit. Yeah, it, it definitely impacted. And I, I was lucky because I have an amazing producing partner, Salome, who who works with me. And and so when when we were doing scenes that were really tough to come out of, I just sort of relied on her to be my, my eyes and ears because it is hard to sort of come out of those scenes and be the producer because it just takes a long time for that to to shift. So I, I trusted her implicitly. And when I was, when I had my wits about me, I could could definitely be a part of of that team. But when we were in those very, very intense emotional scenes, I relied on her to make sure that my eyes and ears were still alert and and around. So Mm. I think it's also about having a really great team mate as well, because you you just can't do it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. There are very few scenes or even shots in this movie that you're not in. It's it's very centered yeah. on on your character and on your your presence uh, and and the physicality that comes with that. Given the the weight of the character, I'm, I'm just curious what that experience was like, scene to scene, in terms of the preparation of of having to hold that space, beginning to end. It was tough. It was really really tough, and like I'm already like <laughs> this. Yeah, it was just yeah. tough. This character has such a feeling of sadness and I guess even a feeling is not necessarily even the right word it's like an essence of sadness that that sort of just lives in her a lot and when you're in that that space all the time it can just be hard um I I it was a really tough place to be 
Um, I felt really protective of her. And I really desperately wanted to make sure that I told the utter truth of who she was and what she was going through. Um, there were times it took a lot of time to come out of the spaces. There were times it took a lot of time to fully leave whatever we had done behind. And I sort of prided myself on making sure that I had places to go after a shooting day. Hmm. Um, and before I came to set in the morning, I would make sure that I was taking care of myself and making sure that I was working out or just releasing some of that energy before going into the next day because otherwise it just i would never have survived it was just too it was it was a lot a lot yeah, yeah. i can imagine yeah. was it was it strange to do that and know you had to come out of it that way like in greece where you're you know you're not home you're not even uh, on your continent <laughs> yeah there were definitely days where i just felt really lonely yeah you know you because it's, it's hard to describe what you're going through to other people because you're the one going through it. Right. Um, but I, I just, I, there were definitely days when you, I would come back to the, the home I was staying in and it'd be really, really, really quiet after shooting all of that. And you'd be left alone with all the thoughts and what you, what you'd been through through the day and you just feel alone. And I, I was really lucky because a, a series of wonderful events sort of happened for me to feel like I was flanked by some lovely people. The home I went to happened to be the home of an artist and they basically lived in a home that was just downstairs. And so if I needed anything, they were right there and they were the most sweet, most welcoming family. I would never have gone hungry because they always made me food and brought it to the house. And there was this, they, I didn't know until I got there that they were, by design, taking care of this dog. Now, in Greece, dogs sort of roam the street, but they're all really taken care of by the community. Uh -huh. And this particular dog uh, wandered up to my bedroom door, which was uh -huh. glass and see-through, in the middle of the night. Hmm. And he, she was huge. I didn't know where she was from, and she never left until I left. Um, wow. so it felt like there was this wonderful spirit and you know, they say that dogs sort of understand when a person is going through something. Mm -hmm. It was like, she knew I needed company and she mm. just stayed. Um, she stayed right there. I bought her a bed. I bought her some food. I looked after her and she just stayed. Mm. And That's it was, lovely. yeah, it was like a, one of those wonderful things where this, it, this sweet spirit just wanted to keep me company and was the gentlest thing ever, but felt like a really protective being. Yeah. I think I just was lucky enough to experience those things whilst going through this big tectonic plate shifting role. Yeah. I'm also curious about working with Elia Shockett in that context. Yeah. You know, she's an actor with a different energy than I'd seen you play opposite before. Uh, the film evolves into a kind of two-hander. She plays an American guide yeah. who befriends your character. Um, yeah, how, how was that? Lovely. She's amazing. She's really amazing. She's uh, um, really generous uh, in the scene and, and she held lots of space for me. I held lots of space for her. There were times when we just like sit quietly together and just like be there together mm -hmm. um she's a brilliant actor i was already a fan of hers um because i'd seen her other work and she's just a really beautiful free spirit that that i was really lucky to work with um and i'm, I'm glad it was her because she was lovely just really lovely and generous and sweet and kind and 
And I mean that from like the bottom of my heart. I honestly don't know if it, if I would have felt the same way if it was someone else. I think she was exactly who it was supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah, you, you can feel that on screen and there's a, a real tenderness between the two of you that, that comes yeah. across. Yeah, lots of patience. So, so sweet mm-hmm. and patient. Like, it was lovely to work with her. Really lovely to work with her. Hmm. Yeah. So this film is very much an independent film, as we said. Uh, that is why you're able to talk about it. It is not yeah. <laughs> covered uh, by the strike. It's interesting because just in you know looking back at some of your credits and prep for this, you have done almost entirely studio films coming into this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, which obviously we will not be talking about today. No. <laughs> um, but I I wonder just in terms of the experience of the visibility of the film, of getting the word out, like it must feel a little bit different, especially being a producer on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely different. Um, this one, I always call it the little engine that could like, mm. and and there is a wonderful thing in this. I, I think that it has to be up to us to really get the word out, that it's really up to us to do the work that we can in order for people to see this movie. Cause I really do want people to see it. And mm-hmm. For, for those who have seen it, I, I've had the most lovely reaction and people come back and they say, it seems to have stuck with me. It stays with me and it won't leave. And I, and that's what I, I want people to, to know, that this is one of those movies that will stay with you. And, and it's an important piece of work um, because it it teaches you about things that we just don't know about. And it's also like the human condition and I think the the wonderful thing about it being an independent is that it's sort of in, in our control how we share it and how we how we get it out there and hopefully those who see it really do want to see it and I think that's the special thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Given the issues that have come up during the strike, it also feels like the kind of film that is is worth very much worth supporting right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 And thank you for saying that. I hope so. I want people to feel that. It's just, I, lo- I love this movie with all my heart and I put my heart and soul and sweat and tears and blood and all of that stuff into it. So yeah, I want to share it with everyone who can see it. Yeah. Do you come off of a project like this feeling not necessarily different, but or energized looking in a new direction of the kinds of films you want to make both as an actor and now a producer? Yeah, I, I came up first. I came off the film exhausted, <laughs> um, but really proud of the thing that we had managed to do. We got to the end of it, and I couldn't believe it. I just like we we'd had such a journey to get to that point, and I guess I, it made me even more determined to want to make important stories, to tell the stories of those who would not normally be told. Uh, and to hear more about the people that I don't know enough about, you know, um, it changed sort of not just what I want to make, but what I want to see. Mm. Um, and I think that that really is sort of the 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 seed that will grow into what kinds of films I want to make. Because, yes, studio movies are amazing and can be wonderful. But these little gems, these indie movies that you don't know about until someone says, hey, you should see this movie. Or, you know, you're walking past something and there's like this one advert somewhere, there's one poster somewhere that you happen to be passing, you're curious about it. Some of those can are often the most meaningful, most um, arresting movies that, that, that there are. So yeah. I hope I can keep doing that. Yeah. So SAG After has been on strike for going on three months now. Um, yes. You have a, a very big project that we won't talk about, but that uh, is in <laughs> some some stage of development, let's say. Yes. 
Um, but but how have you experienced the strike? Um, how was your you know schedule plans? How were they impacted? And and what are you hoping is on the other side of this? Uh, I took a break for a second. I stopped and I rested. Um, and but because I am a complete creative, that just never stops really. So I've been singing yeah. left, right, and center all over the place. Hmm. <laughs> so I've been back and forth to New York, or you know, and I'm going to be going to DC at some point. I think just singing. Um, we were at the Blue Note last night. I sang with a, a friend of mine. And, oh, that's great. You know, that's sort of what I've been doing and and taking care of myself and seeing friends that I don't get to see and meeting people when I don't I don't have the time usually to meet and you know that's what I've been trying to do still expanding my creativity but also leaning into people and family and friends that I love yeah hmm. kind of what great. I've done and I hope on the other side of this I hope we all empowered to the, the phrase that comes to mind is take care of one another. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we are all really working very hard. And I think that sometimes that gets taken for granted and we don't quite realize that a lot of work is being done, not just behind, not just on screen, but behind the screen as well. We're all working really hard and we all deserve to be treated fairly for the work that we're doing. Hmm. Seems like a good sentiment <laughs> Yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of singing, you you also have a beautiful song that's a part of this film. Yeah, uh, you've already been Oscar nominated for both acting and and songwriting for the same movie. Uh, you have <laughs> another great kind of double header here. Um, but what does that relationship look like between you for a film like this, where you are acting in it, you do have a song in it, you're also producing it? Um, but <laughs> how do those creativities, creative sides, uh, meld? I suppose. When when we started this, I didn't I didn't intend to write the song or co-write the song at the end of this movie. It's just that when I was whilst I was doing it, I would I would run every morning and I would listen to music. And and this particular artist, Lauren Vula, her a song started playing, a song called Father. And my brain and my heart automatically knew that this is this is the person that I if we were to make a song, would make the song for this particular movie. It just was. It just felt right. And I ran to the rest of my producers. I was like, this is the person that I, if I'm going to do a song, I want to write it with this person. I think she knows what's, what is best. I think she would be able to make this song the way I hear the song in my head. Um, and you never know until you meet and you get into a room with someone whether or not it will work. And when I went to sit and talk with Laura... I sent her the movie. I asked her to just take a look at it. And and she sent me back the sort of like the very like the very first verse and and the sound of what could have been the, the chorus. And I fell in love. And so mm. we automatically got into a room and started writing and it sort of rose itself. It didn't take very long for us to write and we worked together to make it be what it is. And it's just like passion is what it, where it comes from for me. I, I knew I wanted to put everything I could put into this movie, however possible. So if that meant I was going to co-write a song, then I was going to co-write a song. If that meant that I was going to be on set for as many hours as I needed to in order to help produce, then that was what I was going to do. And to be in it, I was going to pour everything I could pour into it as an actor. And for me, that just makes for a holistic experience when it comes to being a part of 
of a movie, any movie, but particularly this one. Hmm. You mentioned taking a, a little break uh, as the strike yeah. began, and I, I thought of just the kind of whirlwind five or six years you've had uh, since especially doing Color Purple on Broadway. Was there a moment for you of just taking stock of what (laughs) these last few years have been like? I mean, especially now you have, you have this movie coming out, uh, Color Purple, you're not in it, but of course there's, it feels a little full circle to me. I don't know if it feels that way to you. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had a, a moment of that. I think it was on my treadmill and I just was like, whoa, (laughs) well a lot has happened a lot has happened because you just you know it's true you don't you don't get the time to like stop uh, until you do and then just you know looking at what had happened the things that were happening where I was it all just sort of like came into focus and I just felt I just feel really really grateful I feel really grateful for where I am what I've been able to do how far I've come because it's crazy. I don't know that I don't know that I expected all of this to happen, but it's fun and cool. <laughs> that does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at vanityfair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.